Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Informed Catholic Podcast. My name is Ned Jabbar, so let's open up with a prayer, please. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord who, by the Holy Ghost, was conceived, born of the Virgin Mary, raised, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. He descended unto hell. On the third day he arose again from the dead, and he ascended unto heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Queen of the Rosary, pray for us. St. Joseph, Guardian of the Holy Church, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. And St. Michael the Archangel, defend us from evil, pray for us. And St. Thomas More, pray for us. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So, um, our reading is going to be from St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Uh, we're going to do the Beatitudes. It's going to be from verse 1 all the way down to verse 18. All right? Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light so shine before men so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So um, today, if you notice, I added St. Thomas More. Not that it's St. Thomas More's feast day, but because there's a book I want to try to uh, do during Lent uh, to use as a meditation. It's called The Sadness of Christ. It's by Thomas More. It's published by Scepter. And I believe Scepter is owned by Opus Dei, if I'm correct. I'm not too sure, but I think I heard that. 
So I want to do a little background on St. Thomas More, and I don't want to complicate it because I tried doing this before, and I think it just got a little too long. Uh, I got introduced to Thomas More by A Man for All Seasons. Um, it's a movie, and it was based on a play. And I believe the actor's name was Paul Schofield, who was in the film. It's a great movie, actually. It's very beautiful. Um, and it focuses on his final days that led to his arrest and uh, imprisonment and then trial and finally his execution. What I like about Thomas More is that he wasn't a priest. He was a, lay a layman. He wanted to become a priest. Uh, he tried joining a religious order, uh, but then he found that it wasn't for him. But he did walk away and learned a lot. And much of the, much of what the religious order taught him, he carried with him for the rest of his life. Um, Moore loved his family. He was a married man. He was a father. And he cared about the spiritual well-being of his children. And... He was a friend with King Henry VIII. And unfortunately, it was that same friend that finally locked him up, imprisoned, uh, put him on trial, and had him executed. Now, um, what happened here is we're going to look into a little bit in his life. We'll try to touch a little bit on it. I won't go into too many details. I'll try to go on to the major things about him. Let's go into his first his date. He was born February 7th, 1478. He was executed on July 6th, 1535. Um, he, um, he was a, um, a philosopher, a statesman. He was a Renaissance humanist. He was chancellor to Henry VIII. And he, then he became also Lord high chancellor of England in 1529 and uh, in, in uh, May 16, 1532, he was from there. From that date, he was Lord High Chancellor from 1529 to May 16, 1532. He wrote the book Utopia, and he wrote, also wrote res, um, a response to Luther in 1523. He also wrote a dialogue of comfort against tribulation in 1553. He also, of course, we have the sadness of Christ. The sadness of Christ, he wrote this when he was imprisoned in the Tower of London. And it was, um, it was a meditation on the suffering of Christ, which I think is great for Lent. Um, he was also friends with Erasmus. Uh, was also another philosopher and humanist. His influences came from Plato, Cicero, and um, Amerigo Vespucci, and he also studied Augustine of Hippo. Um, he was beatified on December 29th, 1886, by Pope Leo XIII, canonized on May 19th, 1935, by Pope Pius XI just in time for World War II. As you can see, there's a little political um, necessity there. Uh, he opposed the, uh, the Protestant Reformation. He wrote polemics against the theology of Martin Luther and John Calvin and William Tyndale. 
He also opposed King Henry and King Henry VIII's separation from the Catholic Church. And he also refused the supremacy, the king's title of supremacy, head of the Church of England. And he was also against the annulment of uh, the king's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Um, she was the daughter of uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, who financed uh, Columbus's uh, mission to try to find a passageway to India instead of Columbus found his way into the New World, what we call now the New World. Um, he also refused the oath of supremacy. He was convicted of treason and executed. Um, he, he, on the day of his execution, he was reported to have said, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. Pope Pius XI canonized him, as I said, in 1935, as martyr. Pope John Paul II declared him patron saint of statesmen and politicians. In the 1980s, the Church of England has remembered him more, uh, remembered Thomas More as liturgically as a Reformation martyr. He was not a he was not a Reformation martyr. He died because of the Reformation. That's kind of really an insult. Um, the uh, also the the funny. This is a funny part. The Soviet Union uh, praised him. Uh, praised him. Um, I'm sorry. Marx and Engels. Um, Praised him for some reason, I guess, because they thought that he he was a, uh, a, a a socialist, but he was not a socialist. His book of Utopia was against this idea of uh, socialism in a sense. You know, it's it's just the idea that you can create a perfect society, which more more believed you could not do. Um, he was born on, like I said, February seventh, fourteen seventy eight, on Milk Street, London. His father was Sir John Moore. His father was a successful lawyer and a judge. And his mother's name was Agnes. He was the second of six children, educated uh, at St. Anthony's School, then considered one of London's best schools. From 1490 to 1492, it's interesting, 1492, that's when Columbus, uh, I guess, discovered the New World, Moore served Bishop, Archbishop John Merton of Canterbury, and Lord Chancellor of England as a household page. Merton enthusiastically supported the new learning school of humanism and thought highly of the young Thomas More, believing that More had a great potential. Merton nominated him for a place at the University of Oxford. Okay, More began his studies at Oxford in 1492 and received a classical education uh, studying under Thomas Lanker and William uh, Crygan. He became proficient in both Latin and Greek. Moore left Oxford after only two years at his father's insistence to begin legal training in London at the New Inn. In 1496, Moore became a student at Lincoln's Inn and one of the inn's court, and, and he remained until 1502 when he was called to the bar. So we're going to go into spiritual life next. So, uh, according to his friend, theologian, Desiderius uh, Erasmus of Rottenham, Moore once seriously contemplated abandoning his legal career to become a monk. 
between 1503 and 1504, more lived near the Carthusian monastery outside the walls of London and joined in the monks' spiritual exercises. Although he deeply admired their piety, more ultimately decided to remain a layman. Standing for election to Parliament in 1504 and marrying, marrying uh, the following year, Moore continued his aesthetic practice, practices for the rest of his life, such as wearing a hair shirt next to his skin, occasionally engaging in uh, flagellation, a tradition of the Third Order of St. Francis uh, uh, honors Moore as a member of that order in their calendar of saints. <clears throat> now, let me just say something. I know a lot of people have a hard time when they hear about someone who flogs themselves. Uh, but you got to understand something. Uh, someone like Thomas More was always deeply aware of temptations. And he was, um, remember, working in the parliament and in government. There was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of bribes, briberies. It's, I mean... You got to look at it. I mean, people look at it when they hear something about Catholics flogging themselves. Go to um, in uh, Japan and some Buddhist monasteries. They actually do flog you. Uh, you know, a part of discipline. They would take a stick and hit you over on the back. You would have to bend over, willingly accept the punishment. It's not such a such a terrible such a. I mean, I'm I'm not into the idea of flogging myself, but still, <clears throat> it's. Spiritual discipline is not such an unusual thing. I mean, for you know, I mean, some of the things that people do today uh, for exercises. I mean, the amount of amount they punish they push themselves is kind of like punishment, really. I mean, even risking for the fact that you get injuries, it's not so unusual, really. Uh, but more was constantly given temptations, and people would try to bribe you with money. People try to bribe you with sex. People try to bribe you with property. It was all kinds of, of, of temptations. And working in government, we know how many people, even in today's modern world, they actually uh, fall into temptation very easily. Um, so um, his family life. He married Jane Colt in 1505. Erasmus reported that Moore wanted to give his young wife a better education than she had previously received at home, and he tutored her in music and literature. The couple had four children before Jane died in 1511, Margaret, Elizabeth, Cicely, and John. Going against his friend's advice and common custom, within 30 days, Moore had married one of the many eligible women among his wide circle of friends. He chose Alice Middleton, a widow, to head his household and care for his small children. The speed of the marriage was a little unusual. Uh, Moore had to get a dispensation from, uh, from the church, obviously, which due to his good, he got due to his good public reputation, he easily obtained. Moore had no children from his second marriage, although he raised Alice's daughter from her previous marriage as his own. Moore also became the guardian of two young girls, Anne Cascara, which eventually marries his son John Moore, and Margaret Giggs, later Clement, and would be the only member of his family to witness his execution. She died on the 35th anniversary of his execution, and her daughter married Moore's nephew, William Rastell. 
an affectionate father more wrote letters to his children whenever he was away on uh, diplomatic or legal uh, legal stuff, b- business as well, and encouraged them to write to him often. Um, he was very proud of his daughter, Margaret. Margaret was considered almost like a mirror of him. Margaret, he educated, he taught her Greek and Latin. As a matter of fact, she was very fluent in Latin. There's a scene in uh, Man for All Seasons where the king tries to show off his Latin and then he was you know, knocked over by her Latin because she spoke it very well. Uh, Moore uh, showed a letter, uh, something that she wrote, and he showed it to one of the, uh, to a bishop. The bishop was caught off guard that a woman wrote it because remember back then, you know, they didn't think women women didn't go to a university. It was considered for men, and the bishop was well amazed uh, by her her uh, knowledge of Latin. Moore's decision to educate his daughter set an example for other noble families. Even Erasmus became much more favorable once he witnessed their accomplishments. A portrait of Moore and his family, Sir Thomas More family, was painted by, by the artist Holbein, but it was lost in the fire in the 18th century. Moore's grandson, though, commissioned a copy of which two versions have survived. In 1504, Moore was elected to Parliament to represent... Uh, your mouth, uh, part of London, England, and in 1510, he began representing London. So, um, he then became Chancellor um, to King Henry VIII. Now, this is what we're going to go into. Henry decided he wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. She, he wanted to have sons. And unfortunately, Catherine and him only had one child, a daughter, Mary, who would later on get the throne, but she would also unfortunately suffer with a title called Bloody Mary. Um, some scholars believe that it was unfair, that this was done uh, after Elizabeth in order to smear Mary so Elizabeth would look better. Both of them were half-sisters. Now, in 1533, Moore refused to, att- to attend the coronation of Anne Boleyn as Queen of England. Technically, this was not an act of treason, as Moore had written to Henry, seemingly acknowledging Anne's queenship and expressing his desire for the king's happiness and the new queen's health. Despite this, his refusal to attend was widely interpreted as a snub against Anne, and Henry took action against him. Now, allow me to say this. I believe that the this gossip was spread in court by the Bolins. Anne's father and brother saw Thomas More as a potential threat because he had great he was closely he was close to the king, and the king held him with high regard. But as long as the king the king held Thomas More he will hold Thomas More in greater high, high regard than anybody else. Even in many cases, they felt that he would have more influence on the king than the queen, that is, Anne Boleyn herself. And since Thomas More was still very close to Catherine, Catherine was pushed out of the palace. She was sent to the countryside, that is, his wife, his queen, 
uh, the Spanish, the Spanish queen. And then his daughter, he separated from Catherine, kept her in a private house by herself, refusing mother and daughter to meet, by the way. A very cruel thing. Now, Thomas More would visit both Catherine and Mary. And it was widely known that he would continue to visit her. And the fact is also a lot of the majority of the public held Catherine in high regard and they saw, they, they disdained the idea of Henry taking Anne Boleyn as his wife. Um, so this was, of course, interpreted. The fact that he continued to visit Catherine and he continued to visit Mary to, and he would, he would exchange messages between mother and daughter. Unfortunately, this was going to be held against him. The Boleyns knew about it and other people who supported the marriage between Henry and Anne Boleyn. So therefore they had to spread gossip. And so therefore this would influence the king against Thomas More. So uh, shortly after More was charged uh, with treason, the king went against him. And so they tried charging him with bribes, but the bribes then were dropped because there was no lack of evidence. In 1534, Moore was accused by Thomas Cromwell of having given advice and counsel to the Holy Maid of Kent. This was a nun who had visions. She claimed to have had visions that the king, the king would be, uh, you know, would would do evil acts. That he would turn against his own people. That he would turn against the church. Moore visited her, but Moore saw that she was no threat. Other people did see her as a threat. Moore counseled her to keep quiet or else the king will take action against her. And I think that helped. Um, her name was um, Elizabeth Burton. She was a nun. She prophesied a lot of things though. Okay, a lot of things against the king. And that sort of like was uh, considered treason. They tried to bring treason against him on that one. On April 13th, 1534, Moore was asked to appear before the commission and swear his allegiance to the Parliamentary Act of Succession. Uh, Moore accepted Parliament's right to declare Anne Boleyn the legitimate Queen of England, though he refused the spiritual validity of the king's second marriage, holding fast to the teachings of papal supremacy. He steadfastly refused to take the oath of supremacy of the crown in the relationship between the kingdom and the church. That was going to be a big problem. That was going to be a big problem because the uh, the king being the head of the Church of England, Moore could not accept that. And th therefore, they used that against him as treason. Um, then, of course, you know, it, there, were several, there were several things against him that they kept on bringing up. Um, so then eventually, Moore was imprisoned. Um, he was imprisoned in 1534. And therefore, in the Tower of London, there he wrote the dialogue of comfort against tribulation. And Cromwell tried Thomas Cromwell, who took his place as chancellor, kept on visiting the king. I don't think he became legally chancellor. I think he became sort of acting chancellor. Later on, he would then receive the title. He kept trying very hard to make Thomas more to weaken him, to make him take the oath so that Thomas More would not, because the king was also afraid of public opinion if he, ex, if he was forced to execute Thomas More. 
Thomas More was highly regarded, but it wasn't just public opinion in England. It was public opinion abroad. He didn't just lock Thomas More up. He also locked up uh, Bishop Fisher, John Fisher. So this was going to be a problem. Eventually, of course, it led to trial. So um, eventually, of course, he was found guilty. The trial was held on 1st of July in 1535 before a panel of judges that included the new Lord Chancellor, Sir Thomas Audley. That's right. Thomas Audley held the position uh, before Walls, uh, before Cromwell took over. Anne Boleyn's father, as well as Anne Boleyn's father and brother and uncle, they were all there. More relying upon legal president and the maximum quietacte concentre vendentre. Um, my Latin is not good, but it translates one who keeps sound seems to consent. Understood that he could not be convicted as long as he did not explicitly deny that the king was supreme, head of the church, and he therefore refused to answer all questions regarding his opinion on the subject. Thomas Cromwell at the time, the most powerful of the king's advisors, brought forth a solicitor, General Richard Rich. If you're not familiar, Richard Rich was considered a Judas. I mean, you know, he, um, I'll read on, to testify that Moore had in his presence denied the king was the legitimate head of the church. This testimony was characterized by Moore as being extremely dubious. Witness, witnesses, Richard Southwell and Mr. Palmer, both denied having heard the details of the, re of the reported conversation, as Moore himself pointed out. Can it therefore seem likely to your lordship that I should in no so weighty an affair as this act so undivided, advisedly as to trust mr richard mr rich a man i had always re so remained an opinion uh, uh, an opinion of in reference to his truth and honesty that i should only impart to mr rich the secrets of my conscience in respect to the king's supremacy the particular secrets and only point about which i have been so long pressed to explain myself which i never did nor never would reveal when the act was made, either to the king himself or any of his privy chancellors, counselors, I'm sorry, as is well known to your to your honors, who have been sent upon no other account as at at several times by his majesty to me in the tower, I refer to it to your judgment, my lords, whether this can seem credible to any of your lordships. Okay, if that didn't make any sense, he has kept his mouth shut. He did not reveal his own opinion of the king or what he thought about the king's uh, newfound power. Why would he then reveal it to such a minor, insignificant person as Richard Rich? Or, or you know, why would he just reveal it to someone who has no influence? He had other men there that he could have spoken to and revealed his his private opinions. So that's what he's saying there. The jury took only 15 minutes, however, to find Moore guilty. After the jury's verdict was delivered and before his sentencing, Moore spoke freely of his belief 
that no temporal man may be the head of the spirit of spirituality, take over the role of Pope. According to William Roper's account, Moore was pleading that the statute of supremacy was contrary to the Magna Carta, to the church, church laws, and to the laws of England. Attempting to void the entire indictment against him, he was sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, the usual punishment for traitors who were not the nobility. But the king changed this to execution by decapitation. The execution took place on July 6, 1535, when he came to, the, to mount the steps of the scaffold. Its frame seemed so weak that it might collapse. More was widely quoted as saying to one of the officials, I pray you, masters, lieutenant, see me safe up, and for my coming down, let me shift for myself. He, was, he had a sense of humor. While on the scaffold, he declared that he, that he died the king's good servant and God's first. After Moore had finished reciting uh, the Mesriere, uh, that's a psalm. Let me check it out here just a little bit. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Okay, hold on. Yes, yeah, so, while kneeling, the executioner reportedly begged his pardon. Moore rose up merely kissed him and gave him forgiveness. So that was it. That was the day he was executed. Another comment he, he is believed to have made to the executioner is that his beard was completely innocent of any crime and did not deserve the axe. He then positioned his beard so that he would not be harmed. More acts that his foster adopted daughter, Margaret Clement, be given his headless corpse to bury. She was the only member of the family to witness his execu execution. He was buried at the Tower of London in the Chapel of St. Peter in an unmarked grave. His head was fixed upon the pike over London Bridge for a month, according to normal custom for traitors. Moore's, Moore's daughter, Margaret, later rescued the severed head. It is believed to rest in Roper's vault, in uh, St. Dunstan's Church in Canterbury, perhaps with the remains of Margaret and her husband's family. Some have claimed that the head is buried with the tomb erected for more in the Chelsea, Chelsea Old Church. Another, ha another, among other surviving relics, is his hair shirt, presented for safekeeping by Margaret, this uh, Clement. This was long in the custody of the community of Augustinian of the Augustinian order, who until 1983 lived at the convent. Uh, Devin, some sources, including one from 2004, claimed that the hair shirt was then at the Martyrs Church on, uh, on the Well family estate in Shydock, Dorset. The most recent reporting indicates that it is now preserved at Buckfast Abbey near Buckfast in Devon. Anyway, that was it. And... I just wanted to read a little bit more, a little bit for you about from um, the book uh, here. This is from um, the first chapter, I guess. Commentary on Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. When Jesus had said these things, they recited the hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Matthew 26, verse 30. 
Though he had spoken at length about holiness during the supper with his apostles, nevertheless he finished his discourse with a hymn. And when he was ready to leave, alas, how different we are from Christ. Though we call ourselves Christians, our conversations during meal is not only meaningless and inconsequential, and even for such negligence, Christ warned us that we will have to render an accounting but often our table talk is also vicious. And then we finally, when we are bloated with food and drink, we leave the table without giving thanks to God for the banquet he has bestowed upon us with never a thought for the gratitude we owe him. Paul of St. Mary, Archbishop of Borgas, a learned holy man and an outstanding investigator of sacred subjects, give some convincing arguments to show that the hymn which Christ at the time recited with his apostles consisted of those six psalms which taken together are called by the Jews the great Alleluias, namely Psalm 113 and the five following it. From, from very ancient times, the Jews have followed the custom of reciting these six psalms under the name Great Alleluia as prayers of thanksgiving, at the Passover and, and certain other principal feasts. And even now, they still go through the same hymn at the same feast days. But as for us, though, we used to say different hymns of thanksgiving and benediction at meals according to the different times of the year, each hymn suited to its season. We have now permitted almost all of them to fall out of use. I think this is great. I mean, think about it. Here's a man living in that time in the 16th century and look at the fact that he is talking about ancient Israel, talking about the Jewish customs and looking back into Jesus' own past, the time that Jesus lived in. And he's interested. He's interested in the customs of the times of Christ. And, you know, Catholics have always been accused of anti-Semitism or showing hatred. You know how people talked about how Catholics have hated Jews or talked, called them Christ killers and something like that. Here's a proof to you, to anybody who says anything like that, that this is not true. Yes, there are, there's always going to be stupid Catholics People who call, them, call themselves Catholics are only Catholic by name. And this is proof here that someone like Thomas More wanted to know everything about who Jesus of Nazareth was, who his Savior was, the world he lived in. What was the customs? What was the life like? You know, what was life like for him? What was life like for the apostles? What did they, how did they, you know, practice their faith? How did they pray? What did they focus on? What was their manners, uh, their mannerisms? You know, a very, you know, a, a curious man right there from that one sentence for those one, for those little few paragraph words. He wanted to, he was, he was interested and he learned, he studied. And this man was trapped in the Tower of London. So don't let people, you know, say things like this don't, don't let don't let them you know you know accuse the you know say accuse the catholic church of anti-semitism or anything like that it's just ridiculous i think thomas more 
is great. I think he's great to study. I'm going to use this for Lent, and I'm going to share it with you guys. Another book that I might share with you is Jim Bishop's uh, The Day Christ Died. That's another book great for Lent. Um, I would advise you, to, advise you to try that. I think those books uh, are great. There's also um, The Passion of the Christ by um, the, the saint, the holy saint, um, and Catherine Emmerich. Uh, yes, I, I'm sorry. I just remembered her name. She was the, uh, uh, Mel Gibson used her uh, visions. She had liturgical visions. That's how I, I refer to it. Liturgical visions throughout the year. And she had very interesting um, details. As a matter of fact, um, it turns out some of the stuff she knew about the details of archaeology has proven to be pretty close so um those are great books to use and of course one other interesting thing above all of them is the bible the scriptures you can read the new testament or the psalms uh during lent so i'm going to start with the um sadness of christ and before that, I'm going to do something on um, Lent itself. I'm going to try to put some information together so to help all of us understand what Lent means. Ash Wednesday is next week, so uh, let's prepare for it. I'm going to do uh, maybe one or two podcasts, hopefully at least one, because unfortunately I do work and I've been a little sick lately. So I'm going to do a podcast on Lent on Ash Wednesday and the meaning of it. So let's uh, try the best we can to go through it. Um, keep, make our Lent uh, meaningful. So uh, God bless and I'll see you soon. So let's end it with a prayer in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God bless.